welcome to another edition of Weekly, our weekly podcast about religious Zionism, modern orthodoxy, and everything in between. My name is Ravain Spolter. I'm here with Johnny Solomon. Rabbi Johnny Solomon is a teacher at Matan, Midrash at Lindemann, Machon Mayan, and Midrash at Torah Bechesed. And he's a writer and editor of Jewish content for numerous organizations around the world. Hello, Rav Johnny. Hello, Ruby. Good evening. Okay, I'm here with Rabbi Palibrowski. Rally is a senior faculty member and Shalabet director of Michlelet Mibaseret Yerushalayim and maintains a social, clinical social work practice in Grishetzion. Hello, Molly. Hi, how are you doing? Uh, hi, great. I'm the director of OTS Amiel Bakila and the rabbinic liaison for English-speaking countries for Igun Rabbanate Sohar. Uh, this evening, this week, we're going to discuss our responses to the to the new tradition uh, um, articles, tradition, uh, uh, the, the newest uh, volume of tradition has come out, which is analyzing on the 25th anniversary of Professor Chaim Soloveitchik's uh, famous article called Rupture and Reconstruction, the Transformation of Contemporary Orthodoxy. So first, we're going to only respond to two responses, but first I thought I'd turn it over to Molly to give us like a little bit of a bullet points about the highlights of... Professor Soloveitchik's article, and I guess we'll chime in if we think there's other things that we remember. Uh, and then we'll talk to about two articles, the first being the article uh, by Rivka Press Schwartz called Of Metrology and Mim- uh, Mimesis. Okay, and then the second by Rabbi Chaim Se- uh, Seiman? Simon? Seiman. Get that right? Seiman. Seiman. Rabbi Dr. Professor Chaim Seiman, who talks about, who wrote about the role of Zionism and religious Zionism in American Orthodoxy, which is uh, definitely up our up our wheel uh, wheelhouse. Okay, Molly, what did Dr. Soloveitchik say 25 years ago? Okay, so the truth is, um, it's you know it's kind of hard to put a 60, I think, uh, page article uh, to synopsize it, and it's also the kind of thing that would give Dr. Soloveitchik nightmares if you knew people were trying to do that. Um, I actually remember when it came out. I think anybody who was at YU at the time, I, I, I might be misremembering, but I have this vague memory that at YU when he presented it for the first time, uh, before it was actually an article, like he read it, and, and I still remember the ripples it made. So I'm not going to try to summarize it. I'm going to try to, I think, hit the main points that people have took from it, like why it became such a significant um, and, and almost like a... Like a um, it was a marker of its time, and it became like the way people thought about orthodoxy for, for very many years. If I miss anything important, yes, I'm counting on you guys to re- to kind of fill, fill in the pieces. I did go back and read it today, but, you know, still, 60 pages. Okay, so I, I think the way people took the article, the most, the most significant parts of it were Dr. Salvechik's argument that we moved, it's called rupture and reconstruction, right? His argument is that we moved from... Um, pre, I'd say, I'd say from the shift from Europe and certainly the, the most uh, cataclysmic marker of the end of the European experience being the Holocaust, but he describes even from before that, the move over to uh, American modern orthodoxy and he, um, what happened when that shift occurred. And he calls it rupture and reconstruction. The rupture, in, and again, this is not the, direct, the order that he says it in, but I'm going to say it this way because this is how people conceive of it. The rupture is with or from what he calls the mimetic tradition, which, if I'm not mistaken, comes from the word to mimic, I'm guessing, um, which means that we, it, it used to be for, for, you know, the way Judaism was transmitted was primarily through lived experience and through observation 
of how your community, your family, um, your parents, um, the, the people around you lived your Judaism so that it, so that um, at once it was much less self-conscious, but at, at the same time, Dr. Soloveitchik argues that it was extremely, um, uh, the, the religious intensity was extremely felt because it was kind of part of the air that you breathe. And then he, then he basically, um, I, I would say, tracks how that was lost when, when the, with the move over to Europe, right, with the destruction of these insular communities, um, uh, to, and, and the way, he also discusses the way in which modernity broke down the mimetic tradition. And if people are interested, they can read that in greater detail. And therefore, he says, we turned instead to reliance on texts. Um, and so the experience becomes increasingly text-based and ra uh, as opposed to mimetic. Uh, that's that's what I think most people. Um, I, that, that I think is like the heart of the of of what he said that I think pe most people remember. Uh, anything else? Again, he says a lot of very interesting things in there about um, the nature of the religious experience. Right, that's a big part of it. Like, what does it mean? What, what does a medic experience feel like versus what does a text-based experience feel like? One being much more, let's say, passional and experiential, and the other one being much more rote and and detail-oriented. Um, and there's more, but maybe I should just stop there. Anyway, he also spoke like, about the idea you know, of the shift from the shift from the, the the local community rabbi to the Rosh Hashiva, if I recall. Did he not speak yes, about that as well? that's the other piece that everybody picked on, right? That picked up on exactly that. This idea that that um, the argument being that that from the you know the Rosh Hashiva in Europe in his in his perception did not play the role of the halachic advisor. Um, he was the Rosh Hashiva, and then you had the posek, and again the posek perhaps had a much more mimetic. Um, and Rav Johnny actually talks about this in a Facebook post um, mimetic approach to paskening halacha, even though it was obviously very grounded and rooted in text. Um, but when you move over to a very text-based culture, all of a sudden the Rosh, the Rosh Hashiva becomes the authority because he's the authority on the text. And that's another shift that the people really picked up on. I think that's a very, that's very true. That became another like buzzword of, of what the article was saying. Even though, again, I, what I found interesting when I went back and reread it was he said so many other interesting things. But those, I think, are the two main things that people kind of, kind of took away from the article. I would add the idea being that if you're in a mimetic culture, you, you can sort of, there's leeway. There's grounds for, for, you know, give and take and sort of, a, you know, expansion and contraction of behavior. Whereas if all you're doing is following a text, then you have to meticulously follow the text. There's no, there's no living, breathing, you know, examples to follow. And this is just how we did it. And that's okay. And, and you know, some people do it this way and some people yes, do it that way. All you have is that's one of the implications. On. Yes, yes, that's definitely one of the important Okay, so now, Molly, turn to Rick Schwartz's article. Uh, uh, because, yeah, I'm sorry, Johnny. Okay, wait, sorry, Johnny, was there anything to add? No, I, was gonna, I was just going to say a further implication of that is how uh, people of the newer generations then perceive people of the older generations. And he basically describes how those uh, who put this uh, textual tradition ahead of a mimetic tradition basically look down or question legitimacy of traditions which had been passed on for many hundreds of years. And he gives particular examples of, you know, Kiddush cups and things like that. So this isn't just a shift of we went from one tradition to another, but through that change of waiting, um, uh, people of the old world 
seem to feel that they have to, or they can't even necessarily justify what they did unless they've got a book to prove it. And so we have this kind of religious argumentation through, unless you have a makar for it, it itself must be false. Whereas the mimetic tradition emphasizes Masara not just read, but also lived. So I want to just say, like thinking about this now, and I, as I do, as I've started to expand on my reading and learning and, and the studies that I'm doing, I didn't realize to what degree, if you if you read Soloveitchik and his many other articles, his most, most famous articles are two major, major articles that he wrote about the Baalea Tosvot, about, about Stam Yenam and about basically about pawnbroking. There's a very, very, very famous articles that he wrote. And he, and he talks about the idea of the departure of Rabbeinu Tam from established, from, I'm sorry, the desire of Rabbeinu Tam to uphold established tradition. That's a huge theme in, in the study of, and what he called mimetic tradition is basically how, let's say, Professor Tashmar writes about it, about this idea of halacha was transmitted via what we saw, what people saw. And in the Middle Ages, in the medieval times, and those are not the same, I always confuse them, that Judaism that they in in Ashkenaz they trusted more what they saw than what they read. They didn't let yet trust text at all. And so I always I think it's really fascinating to study this shift in 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 light of his understanding of how halacha developed beforehand. So you're talking about a shift from on the one hand, like in in the times of, of Rabbeinu Tam and Rashi, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, a shift from mimetic to text. And then he's sort of recreating the exact same thing of a shift from a minute to text now happening so many years later, a thousand years later. That struck me just having read his articles so recently. Molly, can you now let's turn to Rivka Press uh, Schwartz's article. Just give us a sense of, uh, just summarize it very briefly for those who haven't read it and uh, give us your response because you wanted to reply to what she had said. Um, okay, so first of all, I thought she wrote a really excellent article. The way that the way that her article was um, was structured was that she went through her own experience with with rupture and reconstruction and how she experienced it as a young woman in seminary and then how she experienced it as she was um, getting older and in her studies and then how she experienced it as she shifted from the more Haredi world to the more modern Orthodox world and how she's experiencing it today. So she said a number of interesting and important things. Um, Okay, I guess I'll just very brief, briefly say them. Her first one was about how she initially read it as she was defensive about the attack on the Haredi world, and then she understood more what Dr. Soloveitchik was saying. Then she talked about um, perhaps the critique of, um, of Shiurim could be viewed through a different lens. She had that at, from, a, from a kind of a scientific point of view. And then she made um, a point that I think a lot of people found very interesting about how... Um, how perhaps that the the movement into the Beit Midrash, in particular, in, in particular the authority of the of the um, the Rosh Hashiva, is creating a, a a very tremendous problem because there's now tremendous dissonance between the Rosh Hashiva and where the youth are. Because her argument is that the modern Orthodox youth that she's observing um, are increasingly engaged with um, a worldview that is. Um, I guess if you want to talk about, you know, modernity, right? It, it, our world, I would even say perhaps even our postmodern world, um, LGBT issues, women's issues, um, all, they're in a very, uh, biblical criticism, they're in a very different place than their Rashi Yeshiva and that this gap is, is a big problem. That's something she raised that I think a lot of people, that resonated with a lot of people. Um, and then she talked in the end about 
um, a, a little bit about the absence of women in the original article um, and, and how she thought there, there could have been a little more relation to it. Although it was interesting that I did see that in his article, maybe it was in a footnote or in an end note, Dr. Soloveitchik did say, I, I'm not relating to the revolution in women's learning, which I thought was, which was in, interesting. So the, the thing that, I, again, it, it's, a, it's a great article with a lot of really interesting points. The piece that I liked um, because it related, it's related to previous discussions that we've had um, on our podcast was actually the very beginning where she talks about her, her reaction initially as a member of the Haredi community because she, um, she says that um, um, she was almost insulted at the time or like the Haredi community almost found it an affront to argue that they don't have a rich lived experience. Um, and again, later she said, I understand now the difference between that and Europe. Um, but to me, I thought that was really powerful because I think she, I think remembering that is important for us as modern Orthodox Jews, because um, when we talk about last week, we kind of tried to put our finger on like what's absent in the modern Orthodox experience. Um, you, you know, this word spirituality that we throw around, what is it that, that modern Orthodoxy is sort of lacking? And I think it's this. I think it's this, what she called, right, the thickness of the experience, this rich mimetic tradition that includes within it um, a, 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 pre a presence of God experience. And I think she's really on the ball about that. I think that that's a very insightful statement. Um, I think that that, and again, as I said last time, I think perhaps that's something that the Haredi world has and that the modern Orthodox world in America, because that's what's being discussed in this article, is lacking. Um, and I think that that's helpful to, to define it that way because that helps us understand um, what we mean when we say lack of spirituality. I think that's what we mean. Um, and the, the final point I'll say, and then I'll ask Johnny for his, for his reactions, if he agrees, disagrees, is um, in Ruptured Reconstruction, I noticed again for the first time that Dr. Soloveitchik talks about the fact that in the absence of the mimetic tradition, they turned over the Orthodox um, turned over the, the the kind of hope to in to instill that spirituality or that connection or just the tradition to the schools, um, and and that's you know he explains that that's part of the text based thing, but to me that's fascinating because last week we were talking about how the schools were not able to produce a mimetic tradition or or, or the results that one gets when one has a mimetic tradition the experiential piece, and I think that that's that's a fair. That's not a critique of the school. It, it, it's not the place of a school to create mimetic experience. It's the place of family and community, and schools are just a piece of that. So when we when we go back to our conversation about like, you know, what's happening with modern orthodoxy, and is it you know what do we expect of our schools? I thought this was a great way to kind of frame it. Like we can expect as much as we want of our schools, but we're asking them to do something that's almost impossible. Because if if what I'm trying to say now is if this lived experience of religion and this lived experience of God is kind of nested in mimetic experience of Judaism. And Johnny, this is similar to what you said at the end, how we like have turned to text rather than like stories. You know what I mean? It's kind of connected to that mm -hmm. point. Um, but if that's really the way to, to teach or to inculcate spirituality, then of course a, a system where that's outsourced to the schools is not going to be successful. So that was that. Those were my thoughts, at least about that that part of her article. I want to hear Johnny's response. Johnny. Okay. Um, so I read 
So I, I read Rifka's article. Uh, it's a, a relatively short article. And as Mali said, she tells the story of her relationship with this essay and the lessons she's learned from it, but also the gap she's found in it. It begins by basically her saying, when I read it first in life, I felt it gave uh, an unfair representation of the world in which I was living. And then she describes how she's moved in her different worlds. And truth be told, I think Mali was very uh, a little soft there. Uh, I, from what I've read, and, and I have the article in front of me, uh, uh, Rivka Peshwart seems pretty frustrated that uh, an article now, looking back at the time, could ignore... Uh, you know, half of the Jewish world, namely women. Yes, yes, she's very to, strong uh, at the ends about the women's issue. And, and moreover, uh, seemed to marginalize a number of other growing issues, which already were evident in the day. Mm -hmm. And so basically it begins by saying, you didn't understand the Haredi world. And it ends by saying, doesn't seem that you understood necessarily some of the most important cutting edge developments going on in our world or your world at the time, and certainly the world today. And so within the article, really what you have here is a thinker reflecting on the relevance of, of rapture and reconstruction both 25 years ago and now. And, and what you hear from her is, is really major questions about where orthodoxy is and what are our priorities. It's a little bit less about necessarily pure mimetic traditions versus text traditions, although she does make reference to that based on her scientific background. But most significantly, you know, where are I? Are are we? Sorry, and where am I? And uh, and if you can't tell a full story, if the picture is incomplete, how much can we necessarily merely lean on this article to be an effective and, and a fair representation of the world which we inhabit? So I I find it I found it to be an essay with many questions. Not too many answers, but those questions were compelling. She made reference to Jay Lefkowitz's uh, important essay about social orthodoxy. And she's basically saying, if this is the orthodox world in which we live, it's not one which is debating whether Mishra Brovas Arkashulchan, it's one which does it see itself connected with the world of orthodoxy and halacha. And so when we do talk about uh, orthodox Judaism, we need to be cognizant of those who feel marginalized, we need to consider how what they do impacts who we are. Well, I, I want to turn back to something that you said about this disconnect. And I'd rather ask you a deeper question, which is, why do you think there is that lack of an experience of God in mono-orthodoxy? And, and secondly, I, I would say from my personal experience, I, I grew up in a, I would say, half-modern, half-Karedi home. But I think very much of my religious experience did come from schools. It came from the yeshiva that I went to, and it was not a modern Orthodox yeshiva by any sense, but it definitely influenced my sense of connection to, to God and passion, et cetera, et cetera. So uh, question one is, why is there that disconnect? And question two, and this is a, a, a more difficult question, is that lack of the sense of feeling the hand of God there, not in the schools either, meaning it's not, not impossible for them to do it, or it's difficult, but are they feeling somehow? You're trying to do it in when they come to Israel, and somehow Israel is giving them that, yeah. which they didn't have when they when they uh, when they when they're in high school. Yeah. So those are great questions. So so the so the, the first question again, I'm not a historian of you know 
American Jewry. Um, but again, when you, if you go back to Rupture and Reconstruction, he traces it, and I think there's a lot of wisdom in what he said. He describes how the modern Orthodox world, this is not in the article, this I'm saying because this is often what I, the way I think about it. Um, when you think about uh, American Jewry, you know, it, the, the, the American immigrants who got off the boat were, came to a world, and again, instead of being cocooned in a, in, in a insulated world, they were immediately thrust into trying to integrate into the larger modern world. And again, in the article, he does trace this somewhat. Um, but again, the history of American Jewry is the history of losing that um, mimetic tradition, certainly modern Orthodox Jewry, because, because part of modern Orthodox Jewry was an outgrowth of, for the most part, people who believed that you could blend modernity and orthodoxy. He also talks about which modern values kind of infiltrated into American Jewry, consumerism and materialism and all kinds of other things. And he, by the way, yeah, I, I don't know. Like, I know now we're going to re, we're going to now, I guess, reevaluate the article. But first of all, when we talk about this, I think we are definitely have a rose colored picture when we're looking at the when we're looking at the at what Europe was. I think it was no, much no, no. more okay, nuanced. So let me say it differently. Much agree, more. No, by the way, you know, I, I I agree with you. And it's number two, the whole consumerism thing. It's all consumerism thing. The, the orthodoxy fell apart between 1920 and 1960. It fell apart, and that's well before consumerism okay, in the so, 80s yeah, and the so 80s and you know Gordon Gecko took over America. Okay, so to be fair, um, he. Oh, by the way, I fixed my computer problems. Yes, so you can yeah, we turn can on hear your screens if you he want. He also discusses yeah. um, what was happening in Europe, and it was falling apart in Europe as well, right? That's why I said at the beginning of the Holocaust was the death knell, but like the Haskalah. And, um, you know, like Europe was also the mimetic traditions were disintegrating. I guess from you can mark it from 1789 and Napoleon's, you know, ghetto walls coming down. So you're modernity, essentially modernity. modernity right. So <laughs> so consumerism, fine. You can argue about the consumerism when that came in. But for sure, like, again, when I, when, when I talk to my students about Ursula Levechik and they and they kvetch about how their modern Orthodox communities are not halakhically observant enough. I say to them, what do you think of Soloveitchik met when he came to America in the 1930s? What what battles did he have to fight, right? He had to fight, meaning at that time, people believed the future of American Judaism was conservative Jewry, and that, and that orthodoxy was going to go the way of the dodo. Um, he, you know, he had to fight against four mechitzas, against, against microphones. He had to fight for kosher butchers. And and this, again, I found so fascinating when I always tell them, oh, Soloveitchik opened the first Jewish, modern orthodox Jewish day school on the East Coast. Not modern Orthodox, the first Orthodox, Orthodox okay, so we're going to show them, What does that mean about all the, it, it didn't occur to all the immigrants, and this was really mind-blowing to me when I read the article today again, it didn't occur to them to open Jewish day schools. Money didn't occur. They were, they were, they were against it. Same. He had to fight them to okay, the nail. So fine. So you're asking me what. So I'm saying to you, this mimetic tradition that he speaks about that was so holy, that was all through Europe. Not so oh, holy. It was, no, not so was, holy and all through Europe. But again, that's why when you said it was gone long before we got to America. That's, that's a that's a that's a very um, simplistic. Um, it, it, you're you're painting it too much with 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 a broad brush. It's and Dr. Salavajic did it. Wait a second. Two different conversations, right? Meaning <laughs> he's. I think he's right. He's arguing. He's talking about the shift to uh, of of. Jewry from Europe to America. In Europe, it was still, it was disintegrating, but it was still there, right? There was still a lot of 
certainly in Eastern Europe, right? The mm-hmm. pockets of, inte- of, of this intense mimetic tradition. I don't think you could argue that in, in, in Poland, right? Polish Jewry definitely was still living that, right? It was, it was, it was, it was, st- it was starting to put its tentacles into Polish Jewry, but there was still tremendous, there was chastidut, there was tremendous mimetic lived religious spiritual experience in Europe. You can't. Okay. And then there was the Holocaust and there was nothing. Everything died. Right. Yes, exactly. So there is no mimetic tradition. No. There's no okay. mimetic tradition in America. So, so, there is none. So, so, so there's no shift. The, the, mimetic, the mimetic tradition is gone. You could Correct? Say that. Well, again, but then you could also talk about, and everybody should, I believe everybody should read, not not everybody talks about The Chosen. Everybody should read The Promise by Chaim Poe. Right. It's the sequel. Because in that book, The Chosen talks about modern orthodoxy versus Hasidus in the 1940s. And then he talks about how post-Holocaust, all these Hasidim came to New York and he and it's it's an incredibly interesting analysis of American Jewry and the clash between the way orthodoxy was going in America, which is this loss of emetic tradition, loss of passion, and the Hasidim who were literally like bringing their their insular world into America. It's fascinating. Mm-hmm. So it's a very complex picture, but so so I would say to you when you said to me like, well, I got it in my school. Yeah, uh-huh. it was Haredi. And I'm like, exactly, right? Your school was Haredi. And the mimetic tradition was preserved by Haredim and by perhaps Hakit. No, excuse me. None of my Rebbeim or their Rebbeim. Okay, but your school was a Shtikl Yeshivish, right? No, my, no I'm, you're missing my point. None of them received any direct tradition, meaning, yes, they did have from, I guess you would say, Rebosha Feinstein. Okay, or maybe but, what, no, but what I'm arguing... But meaning, these people, they built Yeshmeayin. These right, Haredi people built Yeshmeayin. Not through mimetic tradition. Yeah, no, it's but, not mimetic tradition. But, but, it's, okay. we are, but, but we are establishing playing, a new reality in this country. Correct, but they in did order, it in a much more insular way. And therefore, they were able to rebuild a mimetic experience much more quickly. That's how I would... One second. I, I think I think we're we're creating this uh, absolute, you know, either mimetic tradition or textual Correct. tradition. Correct. I think Johnny's uh, right. You know, I'd rather Ch- use the word Chaim never said. Chaim Soloveitchik never said, you know, one was completely replaced by the other. Correct. And within our life today, there's no mirroring. There's no uh, mimesis. There's there's no trying to observe and and uh, follow what we do and and the shimmers that we get from our teachers. The question is. Where do I turn to when I seek to learn? Nowadays, most people learn much from books and bits from people. And in the old world, most people learn much from people and less from books. No, but I I agree with you in the old world. I agree with you in the old world. I think in America, there never was, by and large, I'm trying to make a different point, right? I'm trying. There never was. When I'm using the phrase now, the expression mimetic tradition, I'm making a jump, which maybe Dr. Salvechik doesn't make. Maybe this is my jump that I'm making in my head, right? But... It's I, I when I'm using the phrase now mimetic tradition, I'm not just talking about learning from observation. I'm talking about the fact that the world that has the ability to learn from observation, right? Um, that's a world that lives its Judaism in a very intense way. It's an experiential type of um, of Jewish experience, and what what I'm arguing is that that is that type of approach to Judaism preserves a certain connection to God and a certain spiritual experience and a certain passion. That's my argument, right? So that like, 
um, when you lo- when you lose that sense of rootedness in community, that's that's when you kind of lose the um, the passion and the spirituality. That's the point I'm making. Okay, Molly, I think I'm going to agree with Johnny that, that that's not what he was talking about. Seder, but that's all. what I'm talking I, about because I think it's, <laughs> no, why? Because I think it's a real, I really, maybe I'm over, I probably am overstating it, but I think it answers a question that's been puzzling me for years because I also, I come from, I don't come from an American family. I come from a very European family. Um, and my home was always re, um, philosophically modern Orthodox, but extremely passionate, halachically um, rigorous and spiritually committed. And I never understood like why my family was able to do modern orthodoxy properly, but modern orthodoxy around me was like, was what's b- being described here with this like kind of paucity of, um, of experience. And now I think for me, like the, the coin is dropping about what happens. Right. And I think, Wait, I don't know. Wait, can you explain? I really don't understand. So what, what's the answer? What was the answer to you? My, the answer Why to your me family? Is, and was it, what was there that isn't in, okay. uh, in modern what, orthodoxy? What was there for my family was a history of rich, lived tradition that um, was, was, first of all, passed down within the family. Um, and that second of all, mm-hmm. was expressed not just in learning, but also in actions and in in, in um, a clear emotional um, kind of commitment to the entire system. It was, again, it was like, I, I, her expression is really good. She describes thickness of experience, right? When, when, when you're so, in an experience- So again, and it so my, in my experience, I just want to respond. My experience, I have that in me. My father died when I was very young. My mother carried it on, but I have, those images really stayed with us. But he, I know my, I, I knew my grandfather. Mm-hmm. He was that first generation. My father did not get any of that from home. He got it all from yeshiva, from high school intels, and then he went hey. to YU, and then he learned in Tiferet Yushalayim. So therefore, I mean, I think in America, the the education system did create mimetic tradition. People got it from from day camp. They got it from Marasha Kolel. Yes, they got it from true. all these different I places. Agree with you. So so it, meaning saying that it has to come from the family. It doesn't have no, to come from the family. Not only from the family. It can, it comes from it can come from any number of different places if you're looking for it. I agree with and you. And nowadays it comes from Israel in correct. these modern Orthodox families. That's correct. So therefore so it I don't think it's a disconnect. I think what for whatever reason modernity has crept in and not, and not a lack of, and there's a lack of sense of godliness in, in just in, in general and in, in a family way of life. And the ones, and the people that don't, that, I think the reason your, your parents had it is because they had that sense of godliness, they had that sense of spirituality. But it wasn't because they got it from their parents, they got it from wherever they got it. They got it from, and they wanted no, to they transmit got, it to they, you. They, they were coming from a European perspective and not an American perspective. And to me, that there really was a, a difference. And I, I, I. Fascinating. Johnny, okay, Johnny, you're, you're going to be Mashiach Benayam because. Uh, we're running short on time. Family, yeshiva, European, I'm not, American. Again, I, since, I'm not since, making. I just want to clarify my point. My point <laughs> is, it's experiences that have that have thick spirituality to them. If you understand what I mean by that, so it can. Yeah, but I, I've heard so many people talk about camp that way. Yeah, and I really so need I'm it. saying the camps that do that well succeed. I agree with you. Right, but they could get it, but they don't have to get it from their family or from Europe. It's not Europe or non-Europe. Okay, so. So, but the camps that do that well, well, okay, that's maybe. 
Camps that do that well are not European camps. They're no, right, but again, good. but even even the modern Orthodox camps that do it really well, still a little different than the camps that have a more yeshivish flavor. I'm just going to still think that that's true. I don't understand your, I mean, saying okay, Johnny, please. I, I keep saying Johnny, and then I never give him a chance yeah, to talk. Sorry, no. Well, I don't know how I'm going to be machria between people's different lived experiences, ultimately. I mean, and my backgrounds different in a whole bunch of different ways. Really, what we're pondering here is uh, how tradition is passed down, how fervor can be communicated. And everybody's got their own story, and many people have their own challenges. Uh, Chaim Soloveitchik and here, Rivka Press Schwartz, touch on these, but truth be told, these aren't their central thesis, although certainly embedded in their. Uh, presentation embedded in their argument are question marks about how traditions are passed on and how people learn from people or have ceased to learn from people. I agree that uh, you talk about thick traditions or as people, uh, as some people have noted, uh, Rav Solovich or Yosha Bear, you know, distinguish between Musar Avicha uh, um, um, and Taratimecha. And he speaks about Taratimecha, shall we say, as these thick traditions. And I think you're right. Maybe it used to be that people learned it from their father, and particularly their mother, and now that's been outsourced to the school or to the camp. You know, I, I often write about uh, yichus, and you can talk about a yichus from your family, but you can also adopt a yichus in terms of traditions and understanding from your yeshiva, from your teachers, from your peers. And there are many ways people are influenced. Notwithstanding that, e even with the most passionate of teacher, a person needs to be a receptive student. And there are obviously different times in different places where some people ca were capable of being more receptive to that fervor, and sometimes where people felt that even the most passionate of, of educators who came from the old world, European or American or wherever else for that matter, somehow wasn't sp speaking their language. And embedded in all these conversations is a question of, has there been somehow a change of, of Jewish Orthodox language? from body language to, to text language. And I think we'll all acknowledge that that's been the case. But as mentioned previously, it doesn't necessarily have to be all or nothing. And so each to their own in terms of identifying and explaining why some parents and some families were able to maintain that fervor, some less, and they found that in books. The question really, which uh, Rivka Press Schwartz asks is, where do we find it today? And that's really how she ends her article. She ends asking herself about her students, about contemporary orthodoxy in the United States. And she says, you know, it's really on the street. How are Jews relating to each other? Is it, as we mentioned before, social orthodoxy? And how do we respond? Because <clears throat> text alone aren't sufficient to necessarily bring back that sense of connectivity. I think I want to conclude by sort of turning the discussion for the last five minutes back towards Israel and ask the following question. Do you think that what Rivka Press-Schwartz is describing, that the question that she asked and this, and this shift is also endemic to our experience in the religious Zionist community in Israel? Or on the other hand, have we somehow found because we're here in Israel and because um, there's that religious Zionist element, that that lack of of of, of thickness is somehow that it, it does exist here in your experience, and if it is, 
then why? I'll start with Johnny. In this most recent week, Samakoi Sean, and this is something I sent to you, there was an interesting survey based on a, a recent conference of Israeli educators about how well we're passing on traditions uh, and how people stay within their certain religious circles. And the majority of secular Jews remain secular, the majority of Haredi Jews remain Haredi, and I think it's only 54%, unless my memory serves me wrong, of Datitzioni Jews remain within that Migzal. Yeah, we do, have to, we do have to discuss that survey and another t discussion, because I was right, very but, skeptical about it, but nonetheless. But, but even if those numbers aren't quite right, the, key, the, the point is that in, in Israel, in the religious Zionist community, most certainly, the ideas and the teachings that leaders, that school heads, uh, that parents want to communicate to their children is somehow failing. Uh, and much of it's to do with education and medium uh, and role modeling. And I believe that we've gone too far, really. In, you know, Chaim Soloveitchik um, spoke affectionately at a mimetic culture and basically said, though, we've turned a corner and this is a consequence of that. And this is what we need to um, become more familiar with and, and, and ready ourselves for. I think, though, that we do need to restore a little bit more faith in uh, observation, faith in human relationships. And if we lean too much on people learning through words, not from people, we lose people. So that's how I see what's happening. Uh, and as I wrote in a more lengthy article responding to another uh, essay in this um, symposium written by uh, Lori Novik and Atara Ice, I believe that Gadol Shimushai Yatomi Lumuda is a core uh, teaching of Chazal that we've lost sight of. And we need to restore a little bit of our faith in in our association with people. Molly? Okay, so I'll, I have a more optimistic perspective on this. Um, I, I, I think the whole question of modern Orthodox uh, youth and what they are taking from us and what they're not taking from us um, is much more complex. I agree with Johnny. I think that there are, that there's a real problem that, that, um, that educators and parents are grappling with, which is how do I pass on what is my tradition to my children because what they're living is not the model of Judaism that I'm living. But where I see po uh, something positive is that I think that a, a new um, experience is being born in here in Israel that has its own richness and thickness of experience. I've said this before, which is that I, I and again, I don't want to rose petal all our youth, but I think many of the modern religious Zionist youth are deeply spiritual, um, deeply, they're, they're deep people. They're incredibly thoughtful. They, 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 they're very well practiced in, um, in being in touch with themselves and in having conversations, I would say. They're deeply committed. And again, this is like the Eretz Yisrael revival thing. They're deeply committed to Am Yisrael. They're deeply committed to Eretz Yisrael. They're deeply committed to giving. Um, and, and, and that lived experience, I, I, don't, I, I think that the, they're suffering from an overflow of meaning, not a lack of meaning, right? If in America there's like a sense that that is a paucity of, of again, whatever word you want to use, thickness of spirituality or thickness of lived ex, of, of spiritual experience, whatever you want to say in Israel, it's like, it, it's, it's almost crushing. And sometimes it's too much. And, and I'm not saying that all our youth has this, but I think a lot do. And they're, and 
their lack of allegiance to Halakha doesn't come from a place of um, not caring about God. It comes to a place of like, why do I need Halakha? I'm perfectly happy re- relating to God, you know, by singing in a field. So I think it's more complex, and I think that the Israeli experience is creating its new, a new, very, very thick, very spiritual experience. So actually, I want to sort of split the difference very briefly and and say that I would agree with Johnny that there is definitely a la- lack of religious, I would say, that we, we lose too many kids, to, you know, when it comes to specific Shemirah mitzvot. Um, but I think that as opposed to kids in in America or, or, or modern Orthodox Jews growing up in America, here there's a strong sense of national identity. And I think there's something that, Molly, maybe you allude to, I don't know if you meant this, that that I would say substitute or is it is less less requires that sense of thick religious experience. Meaning like in the old world in Europe, your whole religious experience was your entire identity. Whereas nowadays, like the kids, they want to give back, they're, they're dedicated to, to, to others because of that sense of, of national identity that you get from the fact that you're going to serve in the army or or chesed that they have to do and all of that which comes with it. And maybe that's why, I don't know if it's if it's an overflow of, but maybe that's why they don't feel the need to have that thick religious experience as much because they're finding a meaning in other areas, which obviously as religious parents, we don't want it to substitute, we want it to supplement. And I think that's a challenge to try to understand. Even if you feel so passionate about the state and your people and the, and, and your commitment to and the work that you're doing in the army or what you're going to do for other people, your religious identity is critical and significant in your connection to God is as well. And I think that that's a, that's a huge challenge. And I will just conclude by saying that this is going to be a great lead into our discussion next week where we return to this topic. I think there's so much to talk about. about you know, I, I, happen to, I just really enjoyed hearing the back and forth about uh, Chaim Soloveitchik's article and participating in it. So I think we should return to it and actually discuss uh, Dr. C, uh, Dr. Simon, Simon. Simon, Simon's article, I'll remember it one of these days, uh, about how Zionism is reconstructing American Orthodoxy. I think that would be a great place to pick up uh, when we discuss this next week. Sound good? Yep. Lovely. All right. So I want to thank Molly Brodsky and Rabbi Johnny Solomon for discussing this with us. Uh, if you li- listen to this on iTunes, give us a rating because every time you rate, Hopefully some people will rate. More people will discover this podcast. And we're getting more and more people that are discovering this podcast. So talk about it with your friends. Talk about it with the people who are not your friends. Just talk about it. Have a great week, everybody. Thanks for watching.